Welcome to Common Sense Institute's Common Sense Digest podcast. My name is Alexa Eastberg, and I am a research analyst with Common Sense Institute. As an analyst, I am proud to help provide fiscal analysis on proposed policy changes facing Colorado. Policy changes can often have broad and long-term ripple effects. We utilize dynamic economic models and other tools to simulate economic impact scenarios across Colorado's economy. I hope you enjoy this episode as we dig into the data. And now, here's your host, Earl Wright. Welcome to the Common Sense Digest podcast. My name is Earl Wright, and I'm chairman of the board of CSI. Thank you for joining us today. Today, we're going to explore the economic, societal, and national security impacts of an accelerated energy transition, one that we're getting impacted by here in Colorado, internationally, and domestically, of course. I'm joined by Chris Wright, Chairman and CEO of Liberty Energy, and Evelyn Lim, CSI's Mike A. Laprino Free Enterprise Fellow. Chris, welcome. Glad to be here, Earl. It's great to have you on board today, Chris. And thanks for all you've done for the state and much of what you've also published. Uh, that's uh, available to us in the state as well as around the country. Evelyn, it's also a pleasure to have you back, and thank you for all that you've done in the, as your fellow fellowship also in the housing affordability arena. Thanks for having me, Earl. Chris, uh, you've been in the energy sector for decades, founding Liberty Energy here in Colorado, and have been an outspoken proponent of taking a realistic view of how to address climate change and a global view of how this energy transition affects the billions of people in the world living in energy poverty. Explain that to us. What do you mean living in energy poverty? Well, about a third of humanity today, so think two and a half billion people, don't have clean cooking fuel. They cook their daily meals burning wood, dung, agricultural waste, charcoal. That indoor air pollution kills about 3 million people a year. There's a billion without access to electricity, another billion with unreliable electricity. So that to us is the central challenge, is to energize people's lives. So you're saying about a third of the world population is energy deficient? Correct. My goodness, okay. Evelyn, you've recently published your fellowship report on Colorado's climate goals, and you take a global view as well. But from a national security perspective, which, considering the Ukrainian war and what's going on right now, I think that's rather important. It's particularly relevant with the Russians and the, the sanctions that we put on them, and I think also what we're trying to do and constrain the oil and gas sales going, that are coming out of Russia. Give us a little bit of a sense as to how you see that uh, climate change and national security going on right now. Sure. I think uh, we've seen even before Putin invaded the Ukraine that while Europe was really on their race to decarbonization and in their energy transition, that it really put them in an energy crisis early on in 2021. So people in the U.K. had huge energy electricity increases in their in their electricity bills and it was brought on by several things including the fact that there was a huge wind drought in Europe in 2021 and so you know what we saw was Putin really took advantage of that leverage that he had uh, the EU gets about 40% of their uh, natural gas from Russia Uh, All during 2021, Putin was amassing his forces on the Ukraine border and basically telling us that that this is what he was going to do was to invade the Ukraine. And so when Europe was really trying to grapple with their energy crisis and their increasing prices, Putin invaded. 
And we saw the result was that the EU nations were having a hard time putting sanctions on Russia because they were getting all of their natural gas from Russia. And so that leverage is really what allowed Putin to to take the opportunity to invade. Well, I want to explore that with both of you for a second, if I could. As I understand, at least some of the research we've done around here, is Russia, 40% of its GDP comes from energy. And before the Ukraine was invaded, uh, we know that Russia had one of the largest uh, foreign currency reserves that they've ever had in their history, about $640 billion, I believe, uh, deposited around the world. And pretty much, if I'm correct, Evelyn, and Chris, chime in here if you would, that foreign reserve was built up by their selling to a large a large extent uh, energy to Europe and the rest, rest of the world. Is that is that a fair assumption? That's absolutely fair. And what we saw in 2021, and, and Chris can talk about this better than I can, but I'll just um, say that Asia was really buying up a lot of that natural gas. And, you know, the Russians prefer to sell it to Asia because they're, they're buying it at a higher price. And so we really saw that crunch in Europe was that Asia was buying a lot of the Russian gas at higher prices. Is Asia code for China? Yes, pr- okay. predominantly China. <laughs> okay. Chris, you've, you've done some work and research on this too. Do you have any comments? Yeah, well, natural gas is, is much cheaper to move it via pipeline. So if you can move it via pipeline, you do. So Europe's, Russia's biggest energy sales are to Europe because that's where the pipeline infrastructure goes. They recently built one pipeline to China, but still much lower capacity than the multiple pipelines they have going into Europe. They also sell natural gas via liquefied natural gas. That can go wherever it wants. Um, But, yeah, Russia is essentially uh, a petrostate, just a northern petrostate. It's the dominant source of their wealth, their foreign currency, and the tax revenues to run the country. Okay, so if primary source of uh, Russian revenues are energy sales, so how how does Europe, if they can at all, not continue to fund this war with the Ukraine by purchasing gas and oil from uh, Russia. What's the alternative for Europe, Chris? The the lights go out. The the sad thing is they put themselves in an extremely vulnerable position. Yeah, an all-in dash to be all renewable energy. Of course, that that didn't work very well. Germany, the one who spent the most and gone the furthest, in 20 years, a half a trillion dollars, went from 80% of their energy from fossil fuels to 74%. So it didn't meaningfully, in the electricity sector, of course, it's higher. Everyone thinks energy is equal to electricity. Electricity is just one slice of energy. It's only about 20% of global energy. But Europe just put themselves entirely dependent upon Russian energy. Well, it seems there's two substitutes here, and I think you mentioned one of them. Evelyn, I'm going to throw this question to you. You've mentioned the, the alternative sources of energy, be it wind and solar. And, Evelyn, is that an answer to, to eliminate the natural gas and fossil fuels for Europe? I think we're clearly seeing that, no, it's not. And, and the reason? Well, for a lot of reasons. So wind and solar are intermittent sources, so there's uh, extremely difficult to, to store And so what we've seen with uh, the Russian invasion and this basic squeeze of of the EU and energy is that, you know, Germany, they had started decommissioning their nuclear plants. 
and now they're they're going back to coal because they are having a hard time so it's not fulfilling a their load. energy do needs. Have, do I have the right word there, Chris? It's not a base load. You do. It's it's not a reliable, dispatchable base load source of power. We should say as well in Europe, just as big as wind and solar, you hear about is biofuels. Mm-hmm. The biggest source of that is trees logged in the southeast U.S. and shipped over the ocean. So this is their new modern energy approach is burning trees, which is what humanity did through all the time until the arrival of hydrocarbons. Well, okay, I, uh, a little bit off script here for a second, and I'm going to go to your uh, educational background in energy here, Chris, but uh, is that a uh, energy-efficient way of producing a kilowatt of power to burn to burn wood versus fossil fuel versus uh, solar wind. Give us a little bit of insight there. Yeah, biofuels, the problem is it's so limited. It's what kept humanity in poverty throughout all of human history. It depends on the annual weather, the energy density, amount of land used to produce those fuels is very high. Of course, wood is a very high carbon fuel, far dirtier than coal, not just in greenhouse gas emissions, but in pollutants, particulate matter. You see the smoke when you burn a fire in your house. So th- th- this, is, this is not a long-run solution or advancement. There's simply nowhere near as much energy, and it's quite dirty. But in Europe, it qualifies as renewable. The theory is in 50 years, those trees will grow back, and you'll be net carbon neutral over, over 50 years. Okay, I'm, I'm totally confused, uh, Evelyn. If we're trying to have a cleaner environment, and Europe is doing it by eliminating the uh, nuclear power, which I understand is clean, um, and they're trying to eliminate fossil fuel and coal, but yet they're introducing wood as the substitute to help create a, a, a more energy for themselves in light of the shortage they have of natural gas possibly. How does that work, or, or, or am I missing something? That is a great observation, Earl, and I don't think that you're confused. I think what we're seeing is that they are literally twisting themselves into a pretzel to try to meet this uh, green energy narrative. And as you mentioned, nuclear is a great option if we want to talk about clean energy. Uh, But we see them really on this push to renewables, so wind, solar, biomass, which isn't going to meet the need. Let's kind of go to something that's more practical in front of us. And Chris, you're, you're right there in the forefront of it. Explain to me, if you would, to all of us that are listening, as I understand it, the energy industry has pulled back in capital expenditures for oil and gas exploration from where they were like in 2014, I think to about a third of where they were, if I remember my research correctly. And so we had, now we have energy prices going up, and we have what we consider to be an environmental crisis. How does the our investments that we've made or not made, and a regulatory framework that the oil and gas industry is working, how is that impacting the energy prices today? Yeah, well, I think 2014 is the right starting year. That's the year where OPEC fought shale. OPEC, Saudi Arabia, opened the taps, even drained some of their storage tanks to drive prices down, thinking they would end the American shale revolution, because at that time it took very high prices to make any money at all drilling shale wells. Those two years drove enormous innovation. The break-even prices, the ability to produce shale at much lower prices was Americans are innovative. We keep changing the way we do things. But what happened also was, and that drove oil and gas prices down quite low. For the last six or seven years, oil and gas prices have been low. That, of course, reduces investment. But there's an additional factor that I think is the huge elephant in the room here. 
The energy transition movement maybe started 30 years ago. I worked in nuclear power, solar power, geothermal. I'm again working in geothermal. I'm for, I'm for whatever energy sources lifts up human lives. The problem has been this movement that hasn't been very successful, hasn't changed the world dependent on hydrocarbon meaningfully, moved from just trying to bring alternate sources of energy. Since that wasn't moving the needle much, it's got a new element now, which is to try to attack the existing dominant source of energy in the world, hydrocarbons. So opposing pipelines, strangling regulations, everything is done today to try to reduce the production of oil and gas. And think about that. It's not changing demand for oil and gas, but we're reducing the supply. There's a lot there, in 2015, 2016, a lot of excess capacity in the world. So the pain of that policy wasn't felt right away. It just shrunk the excess capacity. Now there's no longer any excess capacity, and you're constraining the supply of something. What do you think that does to prices? Well, it's got to go up, of course. But So what you're telling me is that the unknown answer to this transition to a clean environment is, um, hey, uh, Chris, uh, Evelyn, Earl, to make this transition, you're going to have to pay more. Now, we don't know how much more, but you're going to have to pay more for energy if you want to maintain the civilized society and the economic growth we have experienced in the past. Am I catching that correctly? And the problem is it's hard to maintain a civilized society when energy becomes more expensive. Energy is just foundational to everything we do. And it's very inequitable. When you raise the price of energy, you don't change our lifestyles a whole lot, but you change the life opportunities, lifestyles, and even health of lower income people, not just around the world, but in our own country as well. Well, and we had the highest, uh, I think, increase to middle class that we've ever had in history, Evelyn, in the China the last 50 years. I mean, it's unbelievable the, the rise from poverty that has materialized there to where they now have like 350 to a half billion people that are middle, middle income. But yet they're one of the largest consumers of uh, oil and gas in the world. How is this going to play out with regards to, to China? What's, are they in this game now to help us make this a better environment? And uh, how can they do that and also grow their economy, if, they, if at all? Well, I think that there is a lot of talk from China about how they agree on our kind of Western energy goals. I think you heard President Xi Jinping last year say that, you know, China is committed to reducing their greenhouse gas emissions. But what they're actually doing is the opposite. So last year, they permitted more uh, coal plants than the entire world kind of combined. And so, you know, they'll, they'll say that they're committed to these gas emission reduction goals. But what they're actually doing is that they're they're not committed. What they're actually committed to doing is growing their economy, becoming very strong, and, you know, having leverage over the rest of the world as well. You're being very kind, I think, to, to Xi Jinping here for a second. But if I'm reading correctly, what I think I hear you saying is that if the communists want to stay in power and continue to grow their economy, they can't grow it uh, at the 5 to 6 percent rate that they need to have to keep the economy and their society stable by trying to produce clean energy. It's just not available to them. So they've got to use coal power. Is that? Absolutely. I think they are committed to growing and the energy sources that they use, it doesn't matter to them if it is renewable or, or not. They are, the, their number one priority is to grow their economy. 
Okay, I want to put, uh, Chris, you mentioned uh, uh, nuclear, that you've worked in nuclear. In preparing for this podcast, I came across that there's, uh, at the present time, about 50 nuclear plants that are being considered uh, for being built or in the process of being built. I think there's like five to seven of them are in China. How much, in reality, is that an answer to the uh, the transition to clean energy? Well, I think nuclear is a, is a great technology. I believe it will have a renaissance because it is a low-carbon energy source that's dispatchable. It's there when you need it. Um, the, you, know, you don't get a wind drought or the sun doesn't go down every day. So I think nuclear will have a renaissance. I'm hugely in favor of that. The problem with nuclear, solar, wind, geothermal, burning wood, all of these today are used to produce electricity. Electricity is only 20% of global energy. What is that again? Global energy? Electricity is what? 20%. Oh, my goodness. What's the other 80% then? The, the, there's transportation fuels, industrial fuels, home heating, processing to make fertilizers, and everything else we use. So electricity is sort of – and in wealthy countries, it gets close to 40%. It's just one flavor of energy. So wind and solar in the big picture, they're not replacements for oil and gas. You can't make plastics out of them. You can't make steel. You can't make fertilizer. You can't manufacture stuff. You just get electricity. So we're really just chipping around the edges. Energy transition is more driven by politics and top-down control and let's shift money here or there. We're not going to have a meaningfully different energy mix even by 2050. It's moved three or four percentage points in the last 30 years. No reason to believe it'll move meaningfully more than that in the next 30 years. Unpopular to say it, but that's what the numbers say. When, oh wait, well, th- thanks for bringing that up. Then what do we have in renewable energy as our total energy pool of production today worldwide and here in the United States? Renewable energy is a little bit greater than two. Well, if you just say wind and solar, which is where the money's going, wind and solar today are a little bit over 2% of global primary energy and close to 4% in the United States. But that's it. That seems like it's not even worth talking about. If you're talking about 2 to 4%, my goodness, that to get it up to 80%, I can't imagine windmill the population we're going to have to have here in the United States to get anything close to 30 or 40%. It, well, it just won't happen because it's in the electricity sector. Once you get to wind and solar or intermittent energy sources on a grid, up to about 40%, the grid becomes very unstable. And now the incremental costs become very high to drive that further. So maybe you could get to 40% penetration in electricity. If you do that on a global basis, that's 8% of world primary energy. It's not the, So this is what brings in the whole talk of hydrogen. Well, hydrogen we can make into a fuel with a storage mechanism. It can be a liquid fuel. So that's sort of the buzz in energy transition circles. Real quick on hydrogen. And we can do it with wind and solar for electrolysis to make hydrogen, then turn it into a liquid fuel. The problem of that is the best case, the energy losses are 50% to do that. So here we are in a world where energy prices are high because we're tight. If you, if you swing energy availability by 2 or 3%, you can have a loose market or a tight market, and we're going to move towards a fuel source that we need twice as much energy to do the same thing as we do today. Like, the, the chance of that happening is vanishingly close to zero. Uh, my world is finance and economics, but Chris, this doesn't make economic sense to me. Uh, the, the math doesn't quite add up. Let me ask you, what math does add up? You and Evelyn, what what would be the combination of various energy sources to get us to that carbon neutral 
level that people want to be at by 2050. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's own economic analysis shows getting to carbon neutral by 2050 returns 11 cents of benefits for every dollar invested. So their own economic analysis shows it at tens of trillions of dollars global impoverishment, just because the benefits of doing it on that time frame are actually not that huge, and the costs, of course, are immense. It returns 11 cents for every dollar. That's not a dollar 11 that I get back. That's 11 cents, so it's in essence costing me 89 cents on my dollar. Correct. If you trust the Intergovernmental on Climate Change, often held up as like they're the, they're the Bible, they're the, they're the high priests of this movement, then committing to meet the Paris Accords is committing to impoverish the world by tens of trillions of dollars over the next 30 then years. What, then what is a rational approach? Evelyn, Chris, you're not off the hook here, buddy. Well, this is why I like to talk about the whole context of this energy transition in in the global sphere. Because if you believe that we will die because of climate change in 10 years, then the cost to getting to this, you know, renewable stage, there is no cost that you can assign to it. If you think you're going to die, then of course you would spend to keep surviving. Okay, that's the argument. All right. Okay. Absolutely. And I think you see that and happening now when, you know, we talk about national security and how Russia and Ukraine, that has impacted this this energy and climate debate. And the answer from uh, the administration was really, well, everybody needs to get an electric vehicle. So we need to further and more accelerate more our energy transition because of these national security concerns. And I would just argue that that doesn't make any sense where we are with technology and what Chris was saying in terms of what do we really get. We, I do think we need to address the climate. That is absolutely a true statement. But I think we need to do it in a rational and reasonable manner. So that oh, yeah. means relying more on our fossil fuels until we can get to a better position with with some of these other energy sources. Well, Chris, you're not off the hook here, buddy. She laid up a, a question for you. How would we get to that that point? What's a kind of a rational approach? You've got all this background, this experience. If I were to trust somebody to give me a, at least a head start and an answer, it'd be you. So help us out. So first of all, market forces are the best way to drive change. That's what's, that's what's created the modern world. So the biggest driver of decarbonization in the United States and globally has been natural gas. The United States has reduced our total greenhouse gas emissions more than the next seven countries combined. And it's dominantly been driven by market forces. Natural gas grew in abundance because of shale production, and we displaced coal from 50% of U.S. electricity production to only 20%. Natural gas is by far the biggest source of electricity in the United States. It has half or a little less than half the greenhouse gas emissions per unit of energy, and more importantly, lower pollutants, not particulate matters in the air, socks and knocks. So just okay, cleaner, natural, natural cleaner ga- air. Natural gas is step one. Give it's me step the, two and three. The, Right, the biggest driver. Nuclear power, absolutely. That could play a huge role in global electricity. This takes time, but natural gas absolutely is a huge target there. The other uh, big target or other big thing we need to advance upon is the storage of energy. If you want to use intermittent sources like wind and solar, we have to have a credible way to store energy. Batteries just don't do it. Europe today has spent an enormous amount on it. They can store a little over one minute 
of energy in Europe. To be able to ride through a wind drought, uh, through a winter where, where it's cloudy and you lose the sun as well, you need weeks of energy storage, not minutes. So we need some technological breakthroughs. In Colorado, we should be focused, NREL, on research of really breakthrough energies, just building more of what doesn't really work is not a winning solution. Okay, well, let's go to Colorado. Chris, uh, you've got your headquarters here. I see you at all sorts of events where you're supporting what's going on in Colorado and people are asking you to speak out on various topics. The General Assembly has set targets for emissions and reductions, and the state is actively drafting regulations based on those targets. The governor's repeatedly stated Colorado will be 100% renewable by 2040. How is the regulatory environment in Colorado going to impact you and your work if, in fact, that's his goal and they want to try to achieve they, – they're adamant in achieving that? Again, first of all, that goal is for the electricity sector. So it won't, won't, won't change meaningfully at all demand for oil and actually only at the margin demand for natural gas. The more renewables you put on an electricity grid, the more natural gas you need to firm that. When the wind goes down, something's got to always back that up. Um, That's that base load. Well, even beyond base load, it's firming. When you have wild swings in the wind and the sun, you have to match at every moment exactly the demand for electricity. So you have to have something that can follow that quickly. But look, the the dominant source of energy Colorado produces is oil and natural gas. We're the fifth largest oil producing state in the country and the fifth largest natural gas producing state. If you look from an energy production, we are dominated by oil and gas. And in fact, we produce three times as much energy in Colorado as we consume. So we're a big energy exporter. Are we going to meet these state goals for emissions? That No. Um, is the effort to get there going to drive up the price of energy and export energy-intensive manufacturing out of the state of Colorado? Yes. Are we going to increase the number of people that can't pay their utility bills? I'd say that's a near certainty. Uh, that's not very good news. Um, Evelyn, I'm going to pivot to you now to talk about the state legislature. Uh, they've got a package of bills that are addressing climate concerns. Um, I note that I, I'm saying climate concerns, not the concerns of the average citizen, which I think to some extent Chris has just laid out for us we should be concerned about. The bills concern everything from electric school buses, bikes, building efficiency, to electric lawnmowers. It seems to me that it's kind of a potpourri of what's going on. Um, and you've got a regulatory environment, and you put together in your report all the laws and the regulatory agencies or things that are going on. I lost count after 40. Give us a sense of what's your outlook for the state with regards to the, these new uh, pieces of legislation and the regulatory environment. Sure. I think, so in my report, I focus a lot on electricity because uh, one of the things that I thought that was a disconnect in our policymaking here in Colorado is that we are trying to build an electricity grid that is basically based on renewables. Meanwhile, we are trying to electrify everything else that we, we do. So our cars and our homes and you know, as if you start looking at it, it just doesn't make sense. As we use more electricity, a grid won't be reliable, and that's when you know we talk about blackouts and things like that. No, wait, wait, wait. How how is it that our grid won't be reliable? Explain it. You tell me we're going to have brownouts or blackouts in Colorado like they had in Texas. What are you it, saying? It goes back to this issue with intermittent uh, energy sources like wind and solar, and our inability to store that. So and then I and and not just to go keep beating this China drum, but, you know, one of the issues with 
with storage and batteries is that most of the minerals that we utilize for the storage is coming from outside of the U.S. Uh, these are by mines that are owned and operated by China and you know in Africa and, and various other places. Uh, meanwhile, the Biden administration has closed or stopped permitting. Uh, mines here in the United States. And so our reliance, again, on foreign sources for uh, what we need for storage of our intermittent energy sources is is another uh, security issue that we need to be thinking about. But getting back to your question about Colorado regulations, I just think the regulatory environment for uh, business operators is way too convoluted to operate. And we see this on the national level when uh, the president has said, oh, well, there's nothing standing in the way of oil production. It's not our fault that gas is so high. I think, um, and, and Chris had kind of alluded to this, is that uh, why on earth would companies invest in producing more oil when they know that the administration is actually completely against fossil fuels? And so the money it takes to invest in these projects they're just not willing to do that when they know, you know, this is really a short-term thing. And so when, when you really want to know how a government thinks is you can see it in the regulations. And the regulations show that they're not supportive of oil and gas. Um, okay, I want to I press a little bit on this, Chris, and I'm going to kind of throw it back to you. The, the president has said that, um, you know, we, if you're not going to produce on the leases you've got, guess what? You're going to lose the leases. And so you think, well, my goodness, and in light of where the oil prices are today, they've been as high as 124, 131, I believe, in the last three weeks or something like that. It's over 100, I believe, today. I have to come back and I have to ask you, it seems to me that if I were, if I could, at a cost of 40 or 50 or $60 a barrel, produce something I could sell at 100 to 124, I'd be out there, you know, right away doing as much as I could. So the president clearly is correct and saying that if you're not going to produce on these leases we've given you, give me back my leases, or have I missed something? I mean, the rate of investment today is actually quite high. U.S. oil production will probably grow a million barrels a day this year, more than the rest of the world combined. So there is growing oil production, growing natural gas production, growing natural gas liquid production. Is that on federal land? No, most of that's on private and state lands. Well, he's Some, referring to federal land, so what, wh- why wouldn't I be doing it on a federal land? It's risky. It's risky. You might have permits You might have permits that will last you for six months, but if you stand up a drilling rig and contract a frack crew, you better plan to run that for a year or more or you're going to be in trouble, and you probably don't have enough runway or security for that. So there is some drilling on federal lands today, but there's no doubt there would be more on federal and on private lands if the regulatory risk was lower. But that regulatory risk is not only high today, it's growing across the board. And in fact, to give one example that's so part of this Ukraine crisis, there are six natural gas export terminals that are waiting for licensing to allow us to export more liquefied natural gas. This is a growing and United States is the largest exporter of liquefied natural gas in the world. There's six, you say, that are waiting for licensing? Six that are waiting for licensing. Oh, my goodness. And if we – so we export about 10% of our production. If we could export double that, we could easily grow our production 10% more and export 20% of total U.S. production. We wouldn't have the global crisis we have today of natural gas prices in Europe and Asia. They're five to ten times higher than they are in the United States. 
which makes it hard to heat your home or expensive. Worse of all, the highest use of natural gas is to produce fertilizer, nitrogen fertilizer. Nitrogen fertilizer production right now is going down too expensive. A lot of European and Asian plants are cutting back production or shutting down. We are heading into a global food crisis, unlike anything we've seen, certainly in my lifetime. That concerns me a lot. And that's because we can't move natural gas around the world. U.S. has an enormous abundance of it, but we can't get permits to build terminals to export more of it. We could have five or six terminals licensed to to produce more or sell more internationally LNG. And you just told me that the natural gas is critical for producing nitrogen for fertilizer. We've just seen higher prices for grains than we've seen probably for two decades, if not three decades, recently. And you're telling me to some extent that there's kind of an irrationality going on here with regards to fossil fuels, which are, are a significant part of solving that particular issue of higher energy prices, higher food prices. I don't understand, and I'll let both of you take the question if you'd like, why is it, in your opinion, that we have these constraints at the present time, or is it just people thinking it's, you know, it's just short-term, we don't have to worry about it, we'll get our way through it? Earl, I think that's the problem. I always say the term energy transition, people in my own industry use it, it's used by everyone. It's not happening. The energy, it's not happening. We are investing in alternative sources of energy, and they're slowly growing, but they're still bit players. But when everyone believes we are in the midst of a fast-moving energy transition, moderate, middle-of-the-road people can oppose infrastructure. Well, we're not going to need it in 10 or 20 or 30 years anyway, so maybe we don't need that extra pipeline. Maybe we don't need this. Maybe we don't need that. It's okay if we curtail investment in this space. But all of what you're seeing, this unfolding energy crisis and the coming food crisis, these are government policies based on naive and incorrect beliefs that we are in the midst of a fast-moving energy transition. Look at the numbers. It's not happening. I'm terribly worried by this and troubled by it. Evelyn, uh, your report uh, says that uh, Colorado, let's just take this home if we could for a second, uh, should take a less less aggressive approach in meeting the greenhouse emission targets. Um, Others say, hey, Colorado can be a model. I'm a little bit concerned as to what model it's going to be in light of what Chris just said. It seems like there's a potpourri of, of... of various pieces of legislation, regulation going on. Evelyn, is there a light at the end of the tunnel or is that a train heading towards us? I agree 100% with Chris's analysis. And I and I think my report, I wanted it to be, you know, there's all of these cautionary tales out there of what could happen if we um, rely too much on this energy transition that, as Chris said, isn't, isn't happening. What I would like Colorado to do is is really step back and and I was hoping that you know these these global scenarios would actually show policymakers here that this race is really based on you know delusions of renewable energy. I think that again if you think that we are going to these doomsday predictions are accurate and true which they're not then the the course to take you there, there's no amount of money that should not be spent. But policymakers here in Colorado should take a look at, you know, the science and the technology that's available and realize that while we should be making some changes, what we're doing right now is really only going to make energy more expensive for Coloradans. 
and it doesn't really impact kind of their global view. If if Colorado met all of its renewable goals, we would really only impact global emissions by 0.3%. And so again, what is the cost of, of that to Coloradans? And I think that's an important thing for policymakers with, to, to understand. Okay, in closing, I'm going to challenge the two of you. The question is, it seems to me that we all want to try to do something to improve the climate. And if we're just going to have a, pe- a bunch of pieces of legislation about electric lawnmowers thrown out there, and maybe how much we can use our barbecue grill or things like that. I don't know how much that actually does to impact anything. But, Chris, you've got a background in, 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 in my older day, it used to be called operations research, where you would look at the composite totality of a situation and say, how do you put all the pieces together to get the optimal solution? So, Evelyn, Chris, how do you put all the pieces together here to get the optimal solution that gets you as low as carbon as possible, but yet you keep economic growth at a reasonable rate so you don't have people going and being deprived economically by this effort to decarbonize? Well, two things. One is do the math. Energy realism equals humanism. All what you see in Colorado policy, they're just not even doing the math because they're They're not actually driven really by these incremental tweaks down in greenhouse gases. There's another agenda there. Who could do the math then? Who who would you look to to go down and do the math for the state house so they have a guide a guide? Oh, that math is published all Robert Bryce is a great energy scholar in Houston. There's there's a great guy in Britain called Rob West with Thunderset Energy. There's a lot of people. The United States' Energy Information Administration publishes updated numbers every month. Like this, these numbers, these math, it's all there. I testified in front of the Senate on a, on a climate change bill and pointed out the, that if you take the case studies of everywhere else, that we will spend tens of billions of dollars in an in attempt that will be unsuccessful. But even if we totally decarbonized Colorado by 2030 and did from thereafter, and then you ran the U.N. climate models, it would reduce the global temperature about one one-thousandth of a degree, a hundred times smaller change than we can even measure. So the problem is if you, when you do something on just a state level, it doesn't do anything. If you make energy expensive here, then energy consumption in industries and production will just move outside of Colorado. You won't get rid of those emissions. You just export them from your state and then you import the product. Okay. I'm going to ask the question another way. Uh, if you were to do three things that would have the maximum impact on the, on the, um, environment and carbon in the next decade for Colorado, what would those three things be? Uh, number one, end the war on fossil fuels in Colorado. The biggest source of decarbonization, as I said, in Colorado and around the country has been natural gas. We could grow massively natural gas production in Colorado, displace the rest of the coal production, bring manufacturing into coal, energy-intensive manufacturing away from cold-powered states into a natural gas-powered Colorado, and we could export natural gas much more okay. to China and India to drive to switch their electricity sector from coal to natural gas. This is the biggest mover we could do to lower greenhouse gas emissions globally and pollutants globally. Nat- natural gas, number one. Okay. Evelyn, do you have a, one or two ideas? Well, for here in Colorado, I, I would tell the governor and the state legislature just to stop with the regulations. Uh, these are expensive, irresponsible, and they're not actually getting us any closer to our goals. So what they're really doing is uh, making things more expensive for, for everyday Coloradans. And so I think that they, 
everybody asks me to say this out loud, which I'm doing right now, is I think that they should stop with the regulations. Okay. What you're saying there is you're agreeing with Chris that, hey, natural gas replaced coal, the regulations on natural gas fossil fuels is only increasing costs for the average average Coloradoan. Is that what I hear you saying? Absolutely. And I think that you can have these, um, you can work with industry to say, we we need to lower our emissions. And how do we best do that? It's not by these mandates that are really on the Coloradans and that don't make any sense in terms of how are they, how we're going to reduce or increase our innovation towards uh, reducing emissions. We need to work together to do that, but we've actually kind of made this uh, binary choice between you either uh, hate fossil fuels or you or you don't. Okay. And really, there's a middle ground. Okay. Chris, do you have anything to add? Well, I'd leave with the thought that this myopic focus on climate change, the best way we can save the world or clean the environment, is all about just greenhouse gas emissions reduction. It's just destructive. There's invasive species. There's pollutants in the air that kill people today. There's high energy costs that that harm people's health and life outcomes. You have to look at a broader, holistic, societal approach to what we're doing. It's great for politicians. You have one metric, just greenhouse gas emissions, everything else be damned. But this is not a human betterment strategy. Evelyn, Chris, thank you so much. I appreciate the conversation. And I know everybody listening to this podcast well, too, and we've learned a lot today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. As common sense is getting increasingly uncommon in the world today, hats off to the Common Sense Institute for being trying to nudge things the other direction. Thank you so much, Chris. Thank you for listening to the Common Sense Digest. For more on today's topic, as well as our research on the most pressing public policy issues facing Colorado, please visit commonsenseinstituteco.org. The preceding episode, along with all others, is available on podcatchers everywhere or on our website under the podcast tab. Our technical producer is John Ekstrom and Deft Communications. This has been a production of the Common Sense Institute.